today, um, in the year 2020, we have hoped always for a safer environment for women. And women who have achieved now higher literacy, they are the entrepreneurs, engineers, astronauts, commissioned pilots, and competing head to head now with other genders also. They are currently facing domestic abuse, rapes, harassments at home as well as the workplace in our country. This country is really safe for women. That is the question, first of all, that we have to ask ourselves together as a society and ask whether we have done enough to ensure safe environment for women. And today we have got an eminent panelist to talk and discuss around that. Uh, we would have Mrs. Rekha Sharma, the Honorable Chairperson of National Commission for Women Government of India, who would be joining us shortly. And uh, moving on to that, uh, we have Colonel Rohit Mishra. Uh, Colonel Rohit Mishra is a retired uh, army officer. He served Indian Army for almost 22 years. He's the founder and director of Mission Fight Back, uh, an organization who has been empowering women to take care of themselves, fight, and uh, make sure that uh, they are in a safer environment. Uh, Lieutenant uh, Rohit Mishra, uh, he has also served in the elite Kumar Regiment and Specialized Scout Battalion. He has won gallantry commendations during his numerous tenures in Jammu and Kashmir. He was also selected to be part of United Nations Peacekeeping Force in Dem Democratic Republic of Congo, where he has also authored a book. Now, Mission Fight Back uh, has been built to deliver a new way of street fight to, for the women to create awareness, build confidence, and make them strong. So, uh, Colonel Rohit, I would like to ask you uh, the small question, if you can tell me in uh, one or two lines, that I think your daughter, Vedika, actually started the mission fight back when she was nine years old. Now she's 16 years old. And this happened after the horrific rape case throughout the whole country then. And then... From then onwards, there's no looking back. You have been empowering a lot of women. How you were able to conceptualize this wholesome program and uh, what came into your mind when you were doing that? So, um, hello, everybody. Um, thank you for having me here for this uh, panel discussion. Thank you, Iti. Thank you, Speaking. Now, uh, uh, the whole concept of Mission Fight Back was uh, conceptualized by Ovedika, like you've already mentioned. But it's only after my own daughter, the girl who had conceptualized this, went through uh, harassment in school by some boys. And that is the time when I realized that, you know, me with all the connections, with the training, with the patience and with the time uh, that I could give to my daughter, a lot of uh, fathers wouldn't have actually been able to do it. That is the time when I realized that every girl that I spoke to, every school girl that I spoke to had actually undergone some problem or the other. With that concept, me and my friend Raj Khatri, with the help of our dear friend, uh, Mr. Jaspal Rana, we actually came up with the concept of Mission Fight Back, which is not just about street fight. It is the most holistic program in the world as of today when it comes to the safety of uh, the girl, child and women. Yeah, I'm sure that we are going to talk more about that. Uh, before that, let me move on to our next panelist, uh, Ms. Nishta Satya. She's the head of strategic partnership and policy impact and public relations at UN Women. And she has done some phenomenal work in getting some key strategic partnership and bringing on board some crucial members for UN women. Needless to say that she has been working towards the sustainable development goals defined by women, uh, defined by UN for women. Uh, Nisha, it is an honor to have you as a panelist with us. And uh, would you like to uh, talk a little more about what you feel about women in India right now and uh, what are your thoughts around the safety of women? Uh, thanks, Iti. Uh, well, I'd like to exercise my vanity first. I think you have a slightly outdated designation, which is about three years old, but that's, uh, that all goes back to me not updating my LinkedIn profile. Uh, uh, so I now represent the country uh, um, for UN women um, in, in the 193 countries that we exist. Uh, but besides just speaking to your question, I mean, this is for me, uh, this is for me a cause, this is for me work, this is for me passion. So my entire life comes around really to this, uh, uh, to the issue of uh, women. Now, honestly, you know, I think we uh, took a lot of nationalistic pride when we, when we uh, 
pose this as a problem that's so specific and in isolation to India, which it isn't. Uh, you see, domestic violence across the world has surged by about 30 to 40 percent. 93 percent of women anywhere in the world have witnessed some form of harassment uh, in their in their lives. And uh, when you actually look at the age bracket, it actually comes down to as young as 15 uh, when they experience their uh, you know when they go through harassment for the first time. So it is a statistic that is universal. But that doesn't absolve us from the responsibility of looking at it contextually and looking at, and looking at uh, our own surroundings. Uh, and I would like to say, while I believe uh, just the fact that Lieutenant Colonel's daughter, Vedika, uh, has, you know, uh, has taken up the cause, shows us that women have moved by leaps and bounds to pick the cause and fight for it and establish a movement for it. But unfortunately, it's not a story that reflects the mass of India. When you look at the statistics, it still is an issue. We are far, far behind, no matter what aspect of gender equality that you pick up. And in many aspects, we are far behind uh, many other countries that we wouldn't even think be being, being behind. Uh, uh, but at the same time, we also have a lot of success stories. India is home to the largest number of grassroots uh, uh, of women in grassroots politics as compared to anywhere in the world. So you, if you pick that statistics, we have more women in politics uh, than anywhere in the world. And so, yeah, we have many good stories, but we remain paradoxical as a country. Uh, and, and, and that still concerns me. Safety is an issue, particularly issues like cyber security and cyber safety have really uh, grown in terms of the concern that they pose with more women shifting online or being compelled to shift activities online. So yeah, we're, we don't live in the most equitable space and we should own up to it. These are issues that concern, but I hope to speak about it uh, going forward more in the conversation that I hope will ensue. Uh, I'm sure and it would be great uh, to hear a lot more from you uh, coming from that background and the experience that you have. It would be an honor to uh, listen more and more about you. Let's uh, uh, we, let me introduce our last but most important panelist, uh, Ms. Uh, Sheenu Javar. She is uh, one of the directors of Apex Hospitals. And uh, this is a family-run organization. She is also a first-generation entrepreneur and has founded India's first clinical governance and audits consulting firm ACE Vision Health Consultants, which was recognized by ENY as one of the top 10 consulting firms in India. Chinu uh, is also a Thai charter member and a vice chair of Indian Women Network with CII Rajasthan. So welcome, Chinu. And uh, I know that uh, you have been working towards uh, empowering more and more women in Rajasthan and other areas. Would you like to talk a little bit about uh, that, what all work you have been doing in CII Rajasthan and other places to ensure that uh, women can be more into power. Okay, so a little correction here. I used to be the vice chair uh, of IWS, which is the Indian Women Network, but yes, that experience is with me now, and, and that cannot be taken away, but somebody else is on that post now. So, um, yes, a lot of work is being done. I wouldn't say that we are in the safest of the places in the world when I'm talking about Rajasthan. There are places better than Rajasthan. There are places worse than Rajasthan. And I look at whatever work we are doing in terms of uh, a little dent to create a transformation from phase one to phase two. Uh, whether it is uh, working with CII and looking at how women can be empowered to break the stereotypes, because that is the most important parameter when we talk about gender mainstreaming. It's not just about giving that power of gender mainstreaming in the hands of policymakers alone. But at every level, every human being in whatever capacity they're working or contributing, whether it's their uh, family environment or whether it is the organization where they work, if they're not going to break out of this barrier of stereotyping, then they cannot see things from an open perspective. So in CII, the idea was that we empower women and make them break the stereotypes so that they can you know, sort of flutter out with their wings. So wherever they see that there is a gap or a delta between what they feel they wanted to do from where they were trying to bridge that delta through a collection of the women around them. Uh, at the level of Thai, uh, there's a huge uh, program that's happening at Thai Global 
uh, I'm not going to mention about Thai. I'll leave that work to you, Iti, all the introductions. But Thai is a global um, organization and it has chapters all over the world. Thai Rajasthan is very, very actively participating in the global program of Thai women, where again, we are trying for women to understand on their own that there is no lack of, uh, you know, height of personal success which they can achieve. And for that, again, we are looking at Rajasthan landscape as a phase of transformation, where the idea is not that we just have winners, but the idea is that this whole concept has to snowball and we touch more and more lives of more and more women in the rural landscape, urban landscape, college landscape, uh, midlife landscape, so that they can gather the confidence of being able to achieve what they so far think they're not able to again because of the mental barriers which they have and which they've sort of grown up with and which all of us are surrounded with and we realize from time to time. So, yes. Yeah, and I think that uh, in a conversation, we would love to hear more about this mental blockage and the conversations that uh, uh, people are talking about right now from you. It would be great insight. Uh, also, I have just been uh, told that our fourth panelist, Mrs. Rekha Sharma, has been told uh, for a very, very important and urgent uh, task, which was a sudden one. So she would not be able to join us today in the conversation. But uh, we will continue here with uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Rohit Mishra. Um, you were talking about uh, some numbers that uh, how um, safe currently India is or unsafe currently India is. Would you like to throw some light on uh, women's safety in India and what do, do you have as a perspective to share? Okay, Idi, to begin with, I'm, I'm quite happy if you just call me Rohit. Okay. Lieutenant Colonel Rohit, you know, it takes most of the time. Right? <laughs> okay. So uh, when, uh, uh, you know, when uh, on a personal level, I face this problem uh, with my own daughter and uh, things like that way back in UP. So that is the time when um, I started uh, doing a lot of research. I met a lot of officials from the police. I met a lot of officials, the politicians, bureaucrats, everybody. And um, um, that was the year 2017 onwards. And the statistics that had actually come out were alarming. So uh, in 2016, we had about 108 uh, uh, cases of rape, you know, being reported every day. That is the official official figure. But those are the reported rapes. The people at NCRB and some of the police officers, they actually went over to the extent of telling me that out of every five rape cases that happen in our country, it's only one that gets reported. So which means that you actually end up multiplying it by four. So which means in our country, till as late as 2016, 2017, we were having uh, nearly 500 uh, cases of rapes every day. Now, the, uh, all cases, all, all crime against women, but not tantamounting to uh, just rape, are nearly 10,000 each day. So it actually crosses 3,60,000. Right? Now, uh, in the year 2012 to 2013, that is the year when suddenly the rape cases from 22,000 suddenly shot up to 33,000 or something. The reason for that was after Nirbhaya case, girls started coming out on the streets. They started reporting. Because suddenly they thought that they actually had a backing. I mean, India, a very patriarchal society, misogynistic mindsets. Right? And it's for the first time, I think the Indian women, the girls, they actually thought that the nation was behind them. You know, we saw whatever happened on the streets across the country. You know, that was our equivalent to the Japan revolution. But, you know, nobody really thought that for one girl, the entire country will come out on the road. And that is the reason why uh, you know, uh, the uh, reported rape started going up. Now, the only way to keep that down, rather than, uh, you know, going after the rapist, most of the states, they actually started under-reporting it again. So initially, they actually got the orders that, you know, uh, any rape or anything that gets reported, you must report it. You must register it. You must file an FIR. And that is the time when the politicians actually started realizing that this was like opening up a floodgate. So they just wanted to close it. So that is the reason we are back to square one, wherein uh, cases of crime against women are actually not reported and they're underreported. And there was um, uh, there was a case carried out or uh, a test carried out by the UP police about two years back, when they uh, sent their own recruits to file FIRs in different parts of uh, uh, you know UP. Out of ten people who were told to go and file reports, only three reports were filed. 
and uh, i'm talking about up but that unfortunately is the condition all over uh, the country so the uh, you know uh, what happens in our country is basically we start brushing things under the carpet and so when we have a report that comes which says ki uh, india is probably one of the most dangerous countries in the world for women what is it that we do the first thing that we do is we actually uh, go out and refute it but the fact is that uh, you know walking out on the streets for uh, young girls to women to all the way till a 90 year old it's it's not, it's not easy yeah i completely agree with you i think when we started our dot initiative we were astounded by the numbers in 2.5 months we got a report of almost 120 domestic violence cases and it uh, was uh, most of the cases still we would say are unreported or not reported so i think it's the similar case everywhere Nishta, you would like to uh, talk about UN has been creating so many reports around uh, women's safety. What exactly would be the right reasons of why this is happening in the country, and what what is encouraging it? Sorry, um, honestly, the uh, yeah, we've been doing a lot of reporting around. Uh, understanding drivers of violence but honestly i given this is a public webinar and i'm sure that a lot of people are watching us i don't even want to go into establishing why this is happening because you know honestly understanding the drivers of violence goes back to the foundation of patriarchy is because men think they can do it men think they can get away with it uh, we even have evidence to say that uh, you know while punitive action Uh, might not be a deterrent the immediacy of that action is an actual deterrent but the fact that the public at large thinks that this is something that you can get away with for a while you don't see the immediacy of it coming back to you uh, plus you know when you have very deeply social social cultural beliefs uh, it's it's a combination of everything that comes back to the word patriarchy but i strongly encourage all of us to not look at what could be driving this with anything could be driving it driving this what we absolutely have consensus on is this is the reality that we cannot afford we cannot continue with it's contradictory to every single normative commitment that india has globally it contradicts every single human right uh, you know we know that gender equality is a prerequisite to equality so you may be looking at a lot of other things at a country maybe looking at a 5 trillion dollar economy but gender equality is an absolute prerequisite to that because if you don't have a 50% of your population that is free from violence and the fear of violence you see i think we talk about violence a lot in terms of reporting but it's very difficult to even measure the fear of violence the fear that you know you will have retaliation within your homes you will have retaliation in a public space in a bus in a corridor in an office uh and that retaliation can come to you in any form it can come to you physically it can come to you emotionally it can it can come to you as financial stress and control uh, and control behavior it might or it might come to you back and uh, come back to you in terms of your own mobility so just the fact that 50% of the population is not free from violence and the fear of violence is restrictive enough there are established underlying behaviors uh which come back to people think they have an entitlement they are groomed to do so it is seen as a key feature of what we define as masculinity uh and it is also seen as entitlement within the institutions of uh, within the, within the within socially sanctioned institutions like marriage uh all come together to why it is uh, not encouraged but at least it's not looked down upon and we have many examples of how it's the normal you know when you, we we had a huge program as you and women on the ground on domestic violence and uh, you know we did a lot of combinations and uh, permutations and combinations of uh, of uh, uh, social models social experiments and we went back after a year and we did a quick quick survey and we asked these women if there was a change in domestic violence uh, and on paper nobody would report it uh, and uh, and you know i was quite surprised so i went home to home so i went and asked and sat down with women and i said aapke ghar mein koi hinsa nahi hui ek saal ke andar koi experience nahi hua to maine kaha nahi koi hinsa nahi hui to maine kaha aapke shohar ne aap pe haath nahi uthaya mara nahi aapko pichle 6 mahine mein aise aisa koi wo nahi hua and then and and they said nahi 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 didi mara to aisa to hota hi rehta hai lekin dekhiye ye unka pyar hai ab humko nahi marenge to fir ab kis kis pe ye haq jatayenge 
So you see, it's, it's actually seen as very normal behavior to the extent that we are complicated enough for it to be shown as a show, for it to be seen as show of love, show of ownership, show of belonging. Yes. So, so you see, uh, so there are many drivers to it, and it gets as complicated as it does when you go get to study it. But I think the consensus is, is we need to have a zero tolerance environment. Towards violence, and then we need to start working on the free fear or the freedom of freedom from the fear of violence because that's another set of behaviors and attitudes completely where you don't see the violence but you live every second of your life fearing it. And you know, girls as young as 16 and 17 in relationships fear that retaliation. Sometimes it's not just physical, but it's just cyber violence. It's how somebody could respond to you on a WhatsApp note. Right. So all of that constitutes a set of behavior that encourages, and I want to stop there uh, at having a zero tolerance environment towards violence. I wish that uh, people could hear about what thoughts you have and uh, definitely look into it and talk about it. This is something that uh, I think some people have not been talking about. Sheenu, would you agree to it? You have been dealing with so many women entrepreneurs and people who are already powerful. Do you think that even at the workplace also the scenario is the same or you think that uh, things are changing now for India and uh, there's a brighter future ahead? So I have not had a chance to work with the bottom of the pyramid. You know, that, that's where the problem really is. But in a manner of speaking, uh, in the hospital, we have a lot of different category of uh, the staff, right? There's highly skilled to absolutely non-skilled staff, which is contractual as well. And this is really strange, but most of the contractual staff that works at the bottom, uh, they are almost all of them women who have been mistreated or ousted uh, from their uh, homes post-marriage. And most of them are bringing up their children all by themselves. Now the question is, when we talk about reporting, these people are trying to make the two ends meet. And therefore, it is very difficult for them to spend that kind, the daily wage earners, right? It's very difficult for them to spend that kind of money, time, all of it as a resource, at the cost of bringing up their children to report the cases and to be against the muscle power, whether it be of the, uh, the, you know, the public, uh, health departments and we all know that there are good and bad things everywhere and also of the male counterparts. So this is a very real problem and um, now I do not know what uh, exactly could be if you can pinpoint any one particular factor which could change everything. So, so I've, I've just uh, looked at the question and answers uh, uh, you know section and somebody has asked if education plays an important role. Of course it does but the problem is only to those who are getting that kind of an education can you make that difference by changing the way education is being imparted, the content, the way it's being imparted. What about, at least in our country or in our state, about the people who are not even getting that education? How do you change their mindset? So it is basically what they are growing up with. Now, the children of these women who look at, who see these scenarios, they also accept this as a reality. And they begin to follow the priorities which they see in their a childhood, these same things become the priority or acceptance or normal behavior for them when they grow up. How are we going to be able to change this in how many years? I think, again, it's, it's a question nobody can really answer. We are all seeing different segments of the society. When I talk about the other segment of the society, again, uh, I would say that things are very much hidden. People do not really come out in the open compared to, the, again, the bottom of the pyramid, where things are very clear, but they do not wish to report. Uh, in the other segment, uh, people do not wish to report because they do not wish for these things to come out into the open. And more than going through these problems, there is also a facade which they need to keep up that adds to the whole stress, uh, you know, apart from facing such situations. And um, when you ask me about the future, I think... There is a future, there is a bright future because we are coming out in the open and talking about these things. But at the same time, the most important triggers which make us start talking about these things are the bad things which some people have faced as a 100% exposure. And that is why these things come to the fore. As uh, Rohit also mentioned about the Nirbia case, and that is why women started coming out and reporting, but that, there was a huge dent 
to the confidence of a woman stepping out, which actually made them step out and start talking about it. Right. So the future is definitely bright. I'm a very, very optimistic person and therefore I'm saying so. But the future is not going to become bright organically. So then there will have to be systems in place. There'll have to be people in place, like the organizations that we have on board here, which are going to bring about this change. I think uh, uh, what common is between all the panelists, uh, what you are saying is that people have to speak up and you are not reporting and it came out very well. That is the most important thing. And uh, that is a point uh, definitely uh, that needs to be pondered upon by all the audience who are listening to us right now. Uh, Rohit, I would like to ask, uh, the, your organization have done some phenomenal work right now to bringing and uh, bringing that confidence in women and uh, uh, telling them, that, yes, you can go out, you can do things that uh, you deserve to do. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit more about it and uh, talk about that, what your organization is uh, helping them and how they're doing this? So uh, what Mission Fine Bank basically set out to do, we uh, the first thing we set out to do was uh, we eliminated the age bracket when it comes to training. So what we did, we now, a mission fight back trades girls from six years all the way till 60 years. And we, what we've told them is there is nothing known as self-defense. Self-defense is something that is inherent to you. You are born with it. God ordained you to be uh, able to protect yourself. It's only because of, you know, uh, the patriarchal society that we keep talking about and the male dominance, right? That over the years or over centuries, we've been telling women that, you know, you're the weaker sex, you're the weaker sex. And look at our uh, confidence. There's, not, there's no term known as a stronger sex because if you're the weaker sex, you know, I automatically become the stronger sex. So the first thing that we did was we eliminated that thing out. Right? So we, what Mission Fightback does is we get the six senses in a young girl or a woman and we get it out. We tell them, see, uh, self-defense is something inherent to you. You can fight. You're not weak. So the first thing that we get out of them is we get their own uh, body shaming issues. You know, because body shaming issues actually starts from her own self before somebody else does it for her. We go and tell them we are not into fitness. What we do is we train them in an art which we call FIST. F-I-S-C. That's FIST. That is fast, intensive street survival training. We teach them how to survive on the streets. So for which they do not really have to get into any kind of a sport like karate, kung fu or the traditional martial arts. What we teach them is practical street fighting for which they don't really need to do push-ups. They don't really need to uh, run five kilometers in the morning or they don't need to do uh, crunches. They could be any shape, any size. We train them. Now, before we start training these girls, the most important thing is it's like, you know, whenever you're talking about a soldier, you know, even the best trained soldier freezes when the actual fire comes on his head. So you don't really know how the soldier is going to react to a fire. Now, me training these girls for a period of 14 days, I mean, I cannot actually hope to train them and, uh, you know, have uh, tigresses coming out in 14 days. But the fact is it happens. And how does it happen? Two reasons. The first thing that we teach them is to learn to speak up. And that is exactly what most of the panelists said. You know, you have to speak up. And you also mentioned that. So we teach them, okay, the biggest thing is, you know, uh, whenever a country, uh, you know, faces a situation where there's war is imminent, the war probably happens always in the end, but there are a lot of diplomatic things happening. The backdoor diplomacy happening. You know, there are a lot of talks and things like that. The phone calls happening, and that's exactly what speaking up is all about. You know, most of these problems can actually be diffused if women start speaking up. And while women are speaking up, it is also important for their partners or their parents to start listening to them rather than getting judgmental even before they've heard something. You know, too much of societal pressure and things like that. So we get all these things out of them. So the first thing that we do is we try, uh, we train them to speak up. Then we get these body shaming issues out of them. We tell them, see, you can do what we are trying to teach you. And the, right after the first day, the moment they see, oh, it's so easy. Because this is, like I said, this is not uh, self-defense. They don't have to do any stretches. This is basic hand movement, right? Then the third thing that we do is we start training them mentally. And these days, every school, every college that we've visited, there is one particular thing that we've seen is most of these girls, I mean, most of children as such, most of these younger generation, but I'm talking only about, you know, the girl child and women here. Every school, 15 to 20% children have psychological issues. 
which could range anything from depression to anxiety to self-confidence to self-esteem to you name it and they have it all. What they do not realize is most of these problems are actually coming from home. Right. Yeah. Most of these problems, uh, the parents are actually unfortunately to be blamed because they're of course not listening to the children, they're not giving time to the children. And when an organization like mine comes there, we are not just into street survival. The, um, that's the reason, you know, right at the beginning of the program, I said we are holistic. Yes. What we do is we try to, through a series of psychometric analysis tests, we try to find out the problem being faced by the child. So we have a fantastic team of psychologists, they find out. And uh, we have a few online tests, we have a few return tests, and by the time the child comes to talk to us, and another surprising thing is that like when I started doing the first few schools, when Mission Fightback started training them, most of the school, uh, they told us, you know, your, no child is ever going to come and talk to a psychologist. Firstly, because this is India. Secondly, there's taboo, and everybody thinks there's something wrong uh, with your head in case you're going to a psychologist. But the first school, I said, okay, let's just try it. We had a complete uh, line of students standing there just to talk to us. You know, our psychologists actually had to stay for a day or, or two extra to talk to each and every child. The reason being because school uh, counselors, you know, they're part of the system. We are outsiders. So we are not going to judge. We are here to talk to them and every child wants to talk. He wants to talk. Every child wants to share his or her uh, problem. The only problem is nobody is listening to them. And in case if somebody does listen, there are too many advices coming in or people are getting judgmental. So what we do is, so we do mental training. We get these, we, we get these uh, problems out of their head. Like uh, uh, I'll tell you about a case which uh, I often quote this case. Uh, one of the uh, schools that I visited, uh, there was this girl who was in her uh, fifth standard. Right? So this fifth grader, she was the introvert kind. And so we told her to come out uh, in the open and show us the moves that we had taught her. And she was very shy. So one of the teachers said, just don't bother with her because she's not going to really uh, be, uh, you know, doing anything because she's, she's one of the biggest introverts that the school has ever had. Then another teacher told us, so she wasn't exactly like this before. She was much better off and she would talk and something happened. Five minutes of our conversation with the child, we came to another problem. The problem was that when this girl was in her third standard and she had gone back home for a midterm, that is the time because of some reason, because the parents were, uh, you know, you, uh, were having these infights. She asked her mother, why do you guys keep fighting? And she said, well, it all started the day you were born. Now you've already put guilt into the child's mind. When you say this, it started. Maybe it was just a statement made by the mother to the girl. But it's the child who's carrying it. And she'll keep carrying it for the rest of her life. This is going to affect her trust. This is going to affect her relationships. And she will always be subservient to other people's happiness. So these are the kind of issues. Uh, so like, like I said, we are not just into uh, street survival training, which is a form of martial art. We are also into training them about being uh, mentally tough, which includes speaking up. The third thing that Mission Fightback does is uh, uh, cybersecurity and cyber safety. These days, you know, everybody's got a phone and uh, things like that. So uh, these are the th three things that we do when we are um, uh, when we are talking to schools and when we are training uh, school children. With the government, what we are doing is we do exactly the same things. So, uh, three to four state governments have already shown interest in the concept of mission fightback. And the concept of mission fightback is very simple. We want to raise an army of citizens, wherein citizens come out to save citizens. Because, you know, for so many years, the police uh, has failed, the bureaucracy has failed, the politicians have failed. As parents and as society, we failed our girls. So there has to be an out-of-the-box thinking. There has to be a concept which is out of the box. So yeah. Mission Fight Back uh, did exactly that. We came up with a concept which is out of the box. Absolutely. What, what I we, think, um, I've always been in awe of uh, Mission Fight Back and the phenomenal work that you guys have been doing. And more I learn about it, I think more I am a fan of uh, you completely, Rohit. That's what I admit. Uh, Nishta, uh, coming to you, uh, would you also uh, like to throw some light on what UN Women has been doing around uh, women's safety and exactly you suggest, like Rohit mentioned, that there is a weaker sex and a stronger sex and that's the always something that plays in the mind. Do you think that gender mainstreaming would uh, change the things and move things away from what, where we are right now? 
Uh, thanks, Siddhi. Thanks for that question. I'd just like to add, uh, chime in with uh, my colleagues and friends here. Uh, honestly, I think we're a country, and, and thanks, Shinu, for recognizing it. We're a country with a very highly sold narrative of keeping it together, of keeping the economy working, really, uh, without realizing that women's unpaid care work, women's emotional burden has really subsidized uh, keeping this together, honestly. Uh, the only thing that has kept all of us going uh, as, you know, most in many cases going as families, uh, going as a community, sometimes even coming together as a workplace is the silence of women. So uh, honestly, uh, uh, change has never been pleasant and you cannot go through change without upsetting someone. Uh, and this change particularly is about power redistribution. So I think uh, as we speak about, you know, how we go through this change, the weaker sex, the stronger sex, you have, and we all have to be ready to upset someone. Uh, because this is about, uh, well, I hope that the distribution of power is a happy process, but it never is. So we have to be a-okay and understand that the change process is going to entitle an institution that has governed us for as long as the world. Now, uh, I kind of hear my colleagues when, this, when, they, when we talk about women speaking up, but let me tell you about the honest truth. While we may encourage women to speak up, speaking up successfully never happens in a vacuum. You know, when the woman knows that there's going to be immediate retaliation, there is going to be very limited state response, there is going to be no support from my family and friends, and she's also questioning the norm that has existed uh, since the world has, it's a lot of burden to take. So speaking up as we might encourage it will not happen in a vacuum. For that to happen, we need a well-executed, well-planned grievance redressal mechanism, which has a lot of the components that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mishra was talking about. But important component of that is state response. Important component, an important component of that is economic autonomy. The ability to be in charge of your finances, to make sure that you are an economic, financially independent entity. Uh, family support and community support and social norms are a very, very important part of that because you have to see that there are two sides to patriarchy. There's also a great reward for succumbing to it because you're the perfect wife and you're the perfect bahu and you're the perfect daughter. It's all a very rewarding experience, right? Nobody feels bad when you are said, oh my God, look at her. She comes back home by time and she puts the kids to sleep. What a fantastic uh, wife to have. It's a very rewarding experience. And it's not an equally rewarding experience when you question it. It's in fact, a very, very isolating experience. So we have to build that community support. And let me give, um, and the reason I'm giving you a personal example here is because we always talk about public stories and we never get to talk about the private stories, which are stories of change. Let me tell you about my own life as a feminist. Uh, two years back when I was uh, going through, uh, when I was going through a divorce and coming from a very highly educated franchised family, uh, I thought that it would be perceived as something uh, that happens, you know, relationships break down and things happen. Uh, and nobody, nobody in my family for the right reason stood up and said uh, that they had an issue or, or they had any embarrassment to face because of the, of the institution breaking down. In fact, what I saw was what you see on a Netflix subtitle, indescript behaviors, uh, you know, particularly that you can't put your... Uh, you can't put your finger on and I didn't realize that there was some sort of an emotional pushback uh, th that I didn't even read it as pushback until I was scrolling through Facebook uh, and I saw a post by another woman which, which said in India uh, a dead daughter is better than a divorced daughter uh, and suddenly it put into perspective all the soft pushback that I was seeing that I, were indescript and I couldn't put my fingers on and it gave me the voice enough to say Hey, listen, if you're embarrassed about this, your choice, but I refuse to be in a situation uh, in a situation where I feel any, any of my rights are compromised. Uh, and, 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 and honestly, it's exactly the soldier freezing move, uh, moment for me because I had heard about it. I had worked in it for 14 years of my life. I was an ex-bureaucrat. I worked in the private sector for eight years. I'd seen all of it, but it had never happened to me. Uh, uh, the, you know, the lack of family support had never occurred to me. But when I saw it, uh, it was a soldier freezing move, uh, a moment for me where I didn't, you know, you're ready with all the ammunition, uh, but you're still scared of what you're seeing. So the fact that we, you know, the, the, only, the only time women are going to be able to speak up is when they see an ecosystem response, which means every character in the cast, 
plays their role. You know, the police plays their role. The law enforcement plays its role. Friends play their role. Uh, and and only society as a whole. Society as a whole stands up. And you know, with with the Nibaya incident, that's what we saw. We didn't just we saw failure from one part, but we saw many parts coming together. And that's when change tread. You know, it, it, that's when it's a trajectory change. So the one thing that we will need in place before we expect women to speak up or before we get people to uh, to speak up is an ecosystem response, a peer-to-peer -peer network that Lieutenant Colin Mishra pointed out is also a very, very important mechanism. I think people gain strength from people. That's why we are a society and a peer-to-peer -peer network is extremely important. And the third and probably the most important point is men and boys. I think, uh, you know, the fundament, I keep saying this at Human Women too, which is where we launched the He For She campaign in 2014. The fact that we choose to work with women and women only is again working with an isolated section of the population. It's exactly the same thing that men have done to us for years together, which is have us in a full-fledged game and have us sit on the seat and watch the game without playing. So when we decide to work on gender equality, we cannot not be speaking to men and boys because the redistribution of power uh, has to happen there. It could be it could be people in politics. It could be power wielders. It could be homes. It is important to for the, it is important to speak to those who are in power and who have the power for them to redistribute it and make them a part. And uh, the fact that there are many men out there, but you have one Lieutenant Colonel Mishra, is a good uh, uh, is a good example that there are men and boys who want to put their hands up and be a part of that change. So it's also upon us that we stop only looking at men with it with the lens of a perpetrator and we also look at them as partners because many of them are, many of them have also been at the receiving end of patriarchy, which has also boxed them into some kind of a stereotype, right? I don't think men want to be brave and courageous in yelling all the, all the time. Not that, those, not that those behaviors are equated. Courageous is not equal to yelling. That's not the point that I'm making. But men also do, I think, are fatigued of showcasing a set of very premeditated showcase behaviors. And we must also free them up by making them partners. But at the end, coming back to women, yes, we're all focused on empowering women, but we must ask ourselves, who is ready for these empowered women? Because if you don't have a world that's ready, you are empowering women in a vacuum, uh, which again, uh, is going to lead to change, but it's going to lead to very troubled change. So we might as well have, have the other half as a part of this. And so I'm very, very glad that we have a man and a very brave and courageous man as a part of this panel, because it makes all the change, particularly with daughters like those and uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mishra, you must link even women to Vedika because we're always looking out for young champions uh, and they're really the bright light for us. And this is no disagreement to being old. This is not a concession, so just, just saying. <laughs> That's an amazing test victory when you brought out that personal note from your side. I could uh, very well relate to it. There was a recently a case that uh, we were trying to register for with the police and they came back stating that uh, uh, the parents don't want it. They were okay with the girl getting beaten up. They didn't want the parents to, um, the parents didn't want the girl to report it out to the police. So there's a lot of, uh, uh, not just the families and society, I think there's a lot of bystander effect also that happens when it comes to human safety. We saw that uh, Similar thing in the Nirbhaya case also. Sheena, would you like to add uh, your viewpoint over here on the bystander effect and uh, what do you think about that how we can, as a society, probably talk about it and suppress it? See, the bystander effect comes because you're, you're willing to be uh, responsive rather than preventive. That is why the whole issue happens. And also because the woman herself does not feel empowered to bring about the change. That is why she is waiting for somebody else to come help pick up uh, the pieces uh, for her and support her. So while all of that is okay, and I guess you have, Nishta, spoken about peer-to-peer -peer help, that is fine. There will be organizations which are going to come forward and help. But the first help has to come from within. And I think the empowerment, the purpose of empowerment is not so that you can fight with the others. I think the purpose is that you have to recognize your own value. You have to recognize your own place in society, in your family, in your workplace, in your home, in front of your children, the example that you're setting, what barriers you're breaking. 
why should you be accepting of things because they have been accepted in the, in the previous generation or with people around you? I think that is the first step of empowerment. And the bystander effect will always be there. We have to stop, uh, again, giving the power in somebody else's hands because people are not willing to come forward and help. See, that's again shifting of the power outside of you. So people will be how they will be, but are we able to change ourselves, our thinking? Are we able to break uh, you know, the fear threshold and step out and take charge of our own lives in whatever capacity that we are in? We have to stop fooling ourselves by thinking that the situation that we are in, for so and so reasons, it's not possible for us to step up. That stepping up is not about reporting the incident alone. That stepping up is for us to first of all understand that should we be accepting whatever is happening to us? So for me, I think uh, it begins from within and the evolution has to be within. And we have to stop looking at how the world is treating us. We have to start treating ourselves better first and the world is going to follow. Absolutely. Very, 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 Shinu. Uh, Rohit, would you like to also throw some light on this coming from an army background that how exactly uh, you have to deal with the bystander effect and what you would like to talk to our audience today for that? Sir, you'll have there's a lot of cackling sound in it. Uh, I, I was saying that uh, would you like to uh, talk about bystander effect from the army perspective that what exactly uh, you would like to add from that point of view and uh, uh, how we can uh, defeat that? See, um, not from the army perspective because there is nothing known as a bystander uh, uh, you know, perspective from the army side because we are trained. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, any, uh, you know, we, we are from a nation where anything happens right from a bridge falling down to a flood, the army is already there on the streets. Yes. So we never have anything known as a bystander effect. Now, but what actually brings me to a point, why, right? Why is it that there is a soldier who will never be a, you know, just a watching bystander taking selfies? He'll always take charge and take action. At the end of the day, he's from the same stock that his uh, civilian brother is who's probably going to be taking selfies, trading, education, right? Yeah. He's been, I mean, what happened during Nirvaya case? I, I believe uh, uh, Nirvaya was out there for 45 minutes and nobody did anything. Yes. Right? And I would further like to take the bystander thing uh, two notches ahead. When my daughter had this problem, uh, you'd be surprised the education institute where she was, was actually helping this boy rather than my daughter. That's also in a way a bystand, uh, bystander effect. They just wanted to be neutral. They just wanted uh, this problem to be over. Exactly like what happens on the street. If there is an accident on the street, most of the people are too bothered about the upholstery of the car and taking selfies so that they can go to the office and you know have a, a masala chai and talk masala thing about an accident that they saw. Nobody does anything. The bystander effect with further, I would say, is even the society talking about the victim. I mean, the victim might not be physically present there, but the society talking about it, the neighbors talking about it, victimizing the victim is again bystander. And I think the only way that this can change is in case if there is going to be a phenomenal change. I mean, otherwise, the mindsets are not going to change. We can keep talking about it and we can keep saying, but uh, till the time the conscience comes in from people. You know, it has to be a collective uh, conscious effort that people are uh, saying. I mean, what happened uh, when the coronavirus started? People were skeptical about wearing masks. Right? We are in the middle of a pandemic. People are still thinking that they're invincible and they're probably not wearing masks. But yes, 90% of the population is still wearing. Why? Because they, they know it can be dangerous. They've been educated. There are, you know, you make a phone call to anybody and the first thing they tell you is coronavirus, they wear masks, social distancing and things like that. So till such time, there is education coming from this. And this is some, something that the government will have to undertake. You know, this is exactly like, uh, you know, the uh, person taking an accident victim to the hospital always used to get into trouble. So people stopped uh, taking them. We had laws and rules which actually um, propagated the whole idea of uh, bystanders just standing there. At the end of it, till the, such time some rule comes up which actually saves these people. Till such time, there is maybe uh, some kind of a reward uh, to these people. 
you know that you know when was the last time that you heard i mean what happens in the army in uh, in the army in case if there is a jawan who sees something and he goes out of the way to help the other person he's rewarded at least if nothing else there's a pat on his back in front of everybody so now he knows he's done something good right he's proud of what he's done he's probably even going to write a letter to his wife saying yeah, this is what happened i just got a pat on the back which is not smart but it is there but what actually happens in a country is the police would come back and harass you right, right. your own school teachers start harassing you right That's when there was a problem with my daughter you would be surprised the number of teachers who came and harassed my daughter she would call out of her class i mean there was a boy who would slapped her in front of uh, the whole school because she would not listen to him right she was harassed for about a whole year the uh, the teacher knew about it the principal knew about it they just kept quiet they did not inform me for a whole year and they by standards they educated people but so till such time and then they should also in case if i'm talking about reward there also has to be punishment so till such time you have these things in place put up by the law put up by the society itself i, I think we'll uh, for the rest of our lives we'll keep having these problems of bystanders just being bystanders absolutely i think that it comes with a lot of responsibility as well as a social being as a person who should have a social conscience that uh, you should not uh, indulge in these kind of things Going to the time, I have a couple of questions from the audience also, and I would like to open this up for any panelist who would like to take this. Uh, there's one question that has come up: that uh, do you feel the root cause of this problem is that it is a significant part of our education system? I think Nisha already spoke about this a uh, uh, little bit. Uh, Nisha, would you like to? Uh, talk little bit more on this sure it of course it's it's there is a problem with what we are taught uh, but there is a problem not just with how we are taught formally it's not just a textbook issue it is also about uh, informal education which has a which has a much higher role to play when it comes to social norms and behavior change so it's not just what we are taught in uh, in textbooks but it is also what we see in our homes what we see in our movies right uh, what we uh, it's all about it's also about the fact that you switch on tv and you look at an ad and you see these patronizing behaviors just about maybe not even 3 years back uh there was this ad by a very well known uh, i almost want to name the company but i will not uh there was a very uh, ad by a very well known automobile company where the dad uh, goes into the uh, goes into the showroom and he looks at this guy he looks at the salesman he says uh ऐसी कौन सी गाड़ी है जो चलाने में प्रॉब्लम नहीं होगी जो ऊंचाई में चढ़ाई चढ़ने के में सम बेसिक टेन क्वेश्चंस अबाउट व्हाट इज बेसिकली व्हाट इज कैन यू शो मी अ कार दैट्स मेड फॉर अ पर्सन हु डजंट नो एनीथिंग अबाउट ड्राइविंग बट वांट्स टू ड्राइव एंड कैन ड्राइव एंड देन ही लुक्स एट द गाय एंड ही सेस अच्छा सर ये गाड़ी आपकी बेटी के लिए है इट्स अ फुल ब्लोन टीवी कमर्शियल इट्स अ 30 सेकंड टीवी कमर्शियल बाय अ वेरी वेल नोन ऑटोमोबाइल फार्म that's not even india based that's a connection and you know uh, and you see these commercials all the time you see so my point is that formal education yes has a role to play we are working with ncert we are working with state education to review curriculum to take out textbook references of reinforcing patriarchy but there is a lot of informal education that goes on that is by what we see what we hear and that's also what we imbibe and i think uh, it's high time that while we work on formal education we also work on what we see in our homes and that change has to start personally the, pro- the the problem with uh, with with the entire issue of women's and girls rights is the fact is that we see it as a pers- as a personal matter right if somebody is being harassed wo uski duniya hai wo uski chinta hai that is her problem it is not an institutional problem it is not a public problem Uh, and we have to make sure that these are public issues and i think that's what the nirbhaya movement moment did for india is that it converted a moment to a movement and that transition is extremely important for a country uh, and and you see now today women safety is a vote bank issue but we have to make all issues of women and the rights of women a vote bank issue and for the for that it has to graduate from a private matter to a public matter it has to graduate it has to transition from for informal education to formal education and round back to informal education 
And again, like I said, it all comes back to an ecosystem response. Unfortunately, when it comes to issues like gender, linearity doesn't work. It, you can't have A plus B is equal to C. Or you can't have, if you do A, B will happen. If you do B, C will happen. These are non, behavior is non-linear. So you will have to work on it from all angles and all ways. That's when you will actually see change happen. But education is a very, very important link there. Absolutely, absolutely agree with you. Uh, so I'll, I'll move on to the next question for uh, any panelists who would like to take this up, please. How do you sensitize men and involve them as they have a huge role to play in the making of women? Any, anyone can take this up. Okay, so when we go to uh, different schools and, uh, you know, as part of our sensitization program, we talk to these boys. Right? But talking to these boys is just going to be a one-hour workshop, probably, uh, amongst the 14-day program that we do. But then one of the things that we've actually found out and we realized is that these boys can actually be channelized, you know, by the parents. Because in the school, they're, they're just for a, a short duration. Right? They're picking up things, you know, basically things from home. And when, uh, you know, uh, when two guys beat their friends, anything more than two, it's a mob. And then the mob mentality takes over. And then it's all about, you know, uh, everybody trying to be macho, everybody trying to say something. And of course, you always have something which uh, most of uh, us boys have always gone through in life. That is you, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, challenges being thrown up at us, you know, and the challenges are always involving girls and women. And we have to succumb to it. Because we've always traditionally succumbed to it. You know, you say something to a girl, you go say something. And then, of course, uh, I think uh, Nishtha mentioned movies, the Bollywood movies and the South Indian movies. You know, uh, I, I, I won't even want to get into it. Right? Kind of starts uh, boiling my blood. Right? But the thing is, ultimately, I feel um, whatever has to happen has to happen from home. There is only so much that organizations, there is only so much that government and there is so much uh, which individuals can do. It has to come from home. The domestic violence has to stop at home. You know, in case if there is a domestic violence, there are only two things that happen. You know, I'm, I'm talking in terms of a boy. He will either, uh, you know, get into some kind of a depression because he's been seeing so many things happening. Or he actually ends up becoming a carbon copy of his father. Yeah. So which means he's only going to take it forward. Right. So if, I, I think everything has to uh, come, uh, come from home. And parents, uh, you know, it's not that I have this... Uh, thing that are picked up against parents, but most of, like I said, I've already mentioned it. Most of the problems that are happening are happening at home. You know, it's only five to ten percent of things is what we pick from outside, but rest of the things we are actually picking at uh, at, at home. In case if we can start sensitizing ourselves, most of these problems will actually happen. Yeah, yeah. Nishtha, you would like to add something there. But it's not in my nature to let go of a captive audience. So uh, just trying to make most of this opportunity. Uh, but Ethi, honestly, just to your answer. We have to recognize that men aren't born patriarchal either. It's not like, you know, you have the boy and the boy is patriarchal on day two. Everybody, men and women, are groomed into a set of behaviors, which is why this old age, uh, um, this old adage of, you know, I've heard it so much as a feminist. Uh, is, you know, why, why don't you see the amount of... Uh, uh, distress that women cause to women in homes. Yes, but those women were also groomed in patriarchy. So they're not going to be suddenly different one day. They've learned to be close to the center of power, right? So men aren't also born patriarchal. I think the way to say, I don't think, and I don't think there's one model to sensitize uh, men, uh, men and boys. Again, like women shouldn't be talk, spoken about in a monolithic way. Not all women are same and comparable. Not all men are same and comparable. They're not one group of similar homogeneous people. So there isn't one model of reaching out to people. But the one thing that we know is if you start young, you have a better chance of, uh, you have a better chance of gaining an advocate. So you have to start at ages that they are fertile in thought. Schools, colleges are a very important place. But sometimes we've also seen people who've gone through half of their life uh, and have realized that, you know, this is not what they should have lived because they're also displaying a masculinity that probably is expected out of them. That's how they think they should be. Uh, 
And and so you know uh, we have a he for she campaign, and uh, to, you know today actually yesterday actually UN Women in this time uh, completes ten years of its own uh, constitution. The the fact that you know we've been we're the newest kid on the block, we're the newest UN agency. But in September two thousand fourteen, we had a moment which we thought was a revolution, and we realized hey who are we leaving out? We're leaving out the men and boys, and so we launched the he for she campaign. And trust me, Iti, even I. Did not be. I thought it's one of the UN campaigns. It's going to come like jargon, go like jargon. Nobody will notice. But in 48 hours of launching the campaign, one man from every country in the world had signed up as a he for she. So you know, one man from wow. every country in the world has signed up as as a he for she. So yes, the idea is to open up the space for men to also identify themselves not as perpetrators, but as, but as partners, not just as the problem, but also the solution. And I think that space. Uh, has to open up in terms of dialogue. That space has to open up in terms of who we work with, and also who we include in our work and in our voices. So we have one way to do that, but we also have now made it a programmatic mandate that anything that we do on the ground will have a men and boys component. Uh, uh, and in fact, we're supposed to report on it every year. Sorry, my three-month-old puppy is barking and chooses to bark in every webinar that I'm a part of. But excuse that. Uh, if you can hear him, yeah. So, uh, but you know, we we programmatically have made it a mandate to work on men and boys at least once a single component of everything that we do. That's amazingly put, uh, Nishtha, and I could feel that power when you speak and uh, that it is actually coming from inside. So, audience, uh, I would uh, like to close the session now. But uh, before that, uh, we would like to hear from the panelists one last word of advice. some suggestions something that the audience can carry with themselves so uh, let's start with shinu now you have been keeping quiet for some time shinu <laughs> no i'm really enjoying listening from the experts because uh, uh, i am i wish that uh, this webinar would not finish so soon <laughs> we are also missing rekha ji here yeah if she was here she would have added a lot more flavor because uh, of the kind of experience that she holds the one thing that i would uh, love to thank the government for would be the internal complaints committee i think that has revolutionized the way uh, women now have a platform to speak up and why just women it's the men as well i think while we speak about the safety of women we have to remember that we are talking about gender mainstreaming and it's really both the genders and in future this is also going to turn into a whole new concept of gender fluidity which a lot of countries are, are already talking about um the one thing that i would like to say as a parting shot would be that if as human beings we just develop the one quality of empathy a lot of things would be clear if we can try and place ourselves in the shoes of the person whom we are interacting with uh things will begin to become better that's all that's amazing thought uh rohit you would like to go next <laughs> yeah the only thing that i can say as a parting shot here is um, the so uh, the society has to stand up for uh, you know the girls you know for uh, far too long you know we've actually tried to put them down and the only future that i see is in case if we can walk hand to hand you know step by step matching our steps and uh, otherwise uh, i mean all you have to do is just look at the uh, uh, look at the results the girls have already started overtaking the boys and it's not a new phenomenon it's been going on for uh, very uh, for a very long time so if that be the case that means and if you do not actually give the girls a chance to come out like there is this particular organization that i was working with that actually works in uh, the rural uh, belt of a country they actually pick up some of the brightest kids and then they train them most of the boys they actually end up going to good colleges the girls they are never told to uh, they never allowed to leave the village why because they think the moment this girl go, uh, gets into a college in delhi or mumbai or any other place you know then what happens right so i i think as a society uh, we'll have to collectively stand up uh, for our girls and as a society will have to uh, you know teach them to fight back and uh, we'll have to listen to them Absolutely, very well said, and uh, put Rohit. Nishtha, what's your uh, thoughts? I almost thought you wouldn't ask me for my last words because I spoke so much. <laughs> but uh, but thank you. You know, I think uh, the one thing uh, we're speaking on a very ceremonious day, Iti, because we complete as UN Women ten years of being in existence today. 
uh, and it's, it's a very proud moment thank and I spent Congratulations for thank that. You, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, but the one thing that I have learned in my uh, eight years of diplomacy and of, of some of it working with UN Women is, you know, we have to, as a community, learn to position gender equality as everybody's problem. It's not a woman's problem because it yes. is about a set of behaviors and norms that has really caged all genders, all expressions of sexuality uh, across the spectrum. And you know, the moment we position it as everybody's problem, uh, I think we will have a much different response. Uh, and, uh, and, and, I, and we should include, I, again, we have to be as collaborative and inclusive as we can in our approaches, uh, because that's the only way to go forward. But we must also realize that uh, what we have today is not a reality that we can afford as, uh, as a country, as an economy, as a community, as a marketplace, uh, and therefore things need to change. So if you and I didn't do anything differently tomorrow than today, we would be looking at a very, very skewed world. Uh, we would be looking at gender equality actually only in 2083. Yeah. Uh, and that's far, far, far. At least I don't think any of us uh, will, will, be, will live to see that day. Well, good if we do, but at least I'm not sure if I will. But uh, I really want to see this happen in our times. And the only way we can do this is do this with more urgency, uh, with greater efficiency, and, uh, and also do this with greater dedication. So you heard uh, the lady. Please work five times more to make sure that this time limit is shortened and we can see some gender mainstreaming happening very shortly. We can see gender mm -hmm. equality happening. And uh, Last words is what I would say is that real men would never hurt a woman. So be a real man. And if you're a woman, stand in support for women. Dishta says he for she, I would say she for she as well. So <laughs> please support women and uh, be part of that gender equality that every woman's right is and uh, currently seeking for. I would really like to thank all the panelists. I really wish that this conversation would not end and we can go on and on talking about it. The, your thoughts was amazing. And um, Rohit, Nishta, Shinu, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, I really appreciate for you coming here and hearing your thoughts. It was wonderful having you as a panelist over here as, uh, in this discussion. Thank you so much audience for hearing us out. Uh, hopefully you would like us and you would share these thoughts because it's very important. Let everyone know how important it is to keep women safe in India. And thank you so much speaking for uh, creating this wonderful platform for having all of us and uh, let us talk about it as well. Thank you so much. We would sign off for today. You guys were in conversation with Iti. Thank you. Thank you.